This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Arvind Srinivas is a third-year PhD student at UC Berkeley, advised by Professor Abil. He co-created and co-taught a grad course on deep unsupervised learning at Berkeley. Arvind, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, how do you describe uh, your area of interest? Um, so I'm broadly interested in just, uh, you know, how can we learn better representations of data uh, in a way that we can uh improve the performance of our current ML systems, right? Um, and uh, this this may seem really general and vague, but uh, the, the the reason I say it in, in such a way is because uh, that's how deep learning in, has worked out, in my opinion. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, uh, like, like one or two good ideas uh, kind of transcend different topics. Um, um, like, like there's the transformers idea, which is sort of, you know, doing self attention, uh, and, and, and it was originally applied in NLP, but, uh, it's sort of now, uh, pretty much everywhere. Uh, so, so all of these ideas are basically intended at like getting better representations of data, either through the architecture or through the learning, learning, uh, fun- loss objective functions. Or, or in how do you use the, how do you feed in the data? What kind of data do you train on and so forth? So, uh, that's kind of my interest, like just kind of improving the systems by figuring out better ways to, uh, learn representations. And, uh, I am interested in doing this both from, um, engineering the architecture, uh, or, um, figuring out what is the right learning objectives. So both are very interesting to me. And, um, Things like contrastive learning are more at like the objective function set, uh, level, while, while like you know like the engineering efforts like CPC version two, where the objective function was already there, uh, but we were just figuring out the right engineering in terms of the architecture fall, fall more into the former category. Uh, but I'm also working on some things yet to be released, like you know in terms of. How to better improve the vision architectures beyond ResNets? How to use transformers with ResNets together, and so forth. So, um, and and I'm I'm not very uh, tied to any particular uh, problem, like uh, not just reinforcement learning, uh, but but that's obviously one of the main focus problems. Uh, so, computer vision is also pretty interesting, and uh, like so is language processing. Uh, and, and, and one of my goals is to see, make reinforcement learning more like computer, more like, uh, whatever is happening in deep learning for vision and NLP, uh, where there's a lot of focus on architecture engineering, a lot of focus on data augmentations, a lot of focus on, uh, unsupervised learning. Uh, s- somehow like, you know, reinforcement learning is sort of like more s- deep reinforcement learning sort of stayed more like reinforcement learning than deep learning. Uh, uh, like, like, I don't know for what reasons, but, uh, it's sort of, uh, been that way for the last few years and now it's slowly changing. Uh, and so that's also like a pretty, uh, important topic to me, like how to, how to make deep RL sort of borrow a lot of these successful principles that we have seen work over time in, in 
um, like canonical deep learning and try to uh, unify all these things. So uh, the first paper of yours that uh, we're going to talk about today isn't really an RL paper, but it, I think it sets the stage for talking about curl next. So, um, and that is the data efficient image recognition with contrasted predictive coding. So can you tell us what is going on uh, with CPC in this paper? Sure. Um, so firstly, uh, CPC is basically a, a self-supervised learning uh, objective uh, where uh, it's centered on this paradigm of uh, predicting the future in a latent space. Um, and and uh, so I want to first briefly explain why that's like an important and interesting uh, framework to think about unsupervised learning. Uh, so firstly, unsupervised learning uh, is... Uh, a paradigm where you're trying to learn uh, representations of data uh, in a without any annotation annotated labels from humans. Um, so you just want to learn from raw data that's just available uh, in in, in uh, way more quantity than supervised learning data sets. Um, and and it's obviously inspired from how uh, uh, humans and animals learn in general uh, without having actual annotations. Uh, and within unsupervised learning, there are like so many ways in which you can uh, learn representations. And this dates back to like uh, uh, Ben Gio's work on uh, autoencoders and Hinton's work on re- restricted Boltzmann machines and so forth. Uh, but those things didn't really pan out back then, uh, mostly because uh, the computation was not there and like uh, people were working on really tiny data sets like MNIST. And... Uh, and then uh, there was a flurry of work in the computer vision community uh, on on trying to sort of create these uh, pretext tasks, uh, like you create tasks or uh, that uh, creatively yourself. Uh, like for example, you take an image and you rotate it, and you try to predict the angle of rotation, um, and and so that becomes a task that you can solve without any label la- labels on the images. You give the you give the image its own labels based on like some some transformations you perform, um, and 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 and, <clears throat> and 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 all this kind of like uh, had some reasonable results in terms of uh, performance on downstream tasks. Whether you can take those features and uh, train classifiers on top of them, but it was still lagging behind the, uh, the the kind of classifiers you could just build by directly doing supervised learning. Uh, uh, if you had like a lot of labels. So people mostly thought this unsupervised learning uh, or s- some people call it self-supervised learning, like Jan LeCun calls it self-supervised learning. So people mostly thought the, the, this class of techniques was just not like worth the time. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, always going to lag behind supervised learning and you would rather just collect labels. Um, so uh, CPC or contrastive predictive coding uh, is one of the first papers that tries to uh, sort of go away from these uh, very ad hoc ha- uh, hand engineered tasks to something a little more principal. Uh, but 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 it's not a particularly new idea. It's more like uh, uh, inspired from a very famous and very impactful uh, earlier work uh, done by Mikolaj uh, called Vertebeck, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with in terms of uh, word vectors. It was basically the 
the best word embeddings people were using before Word came out. Um, so word to back is this idea where you're trying to predict the surrounding words of, or you're trying to predict a missing word from the surrounding words uh, in a contrastive fashion. So what, what what does it mean is you don't actually need to predict the actual word because uh, back then people were not able to do softmax over a really large vocabulary, uh, but rather you would just uh, predict uh, an embedding and then you would contrast it with what is the real positive embedding and a bunch of negative embeddings. So it, 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 you would make a prediction in, a, in the latent space and then you would say that that prediction has to correlate maximum with the embedding of the correct word that that's missing and has to not, not correlate too much with the embeddings of words that are uh, not the correct missing words. So uh, you can build these losses in, a, in lots of different ways. Uh, and and Mikla had a very elegant formulation for this. Uh, so CPC sort of revisits that framework uh, in a more general fashion that can apply to any modality, not just text. Uh, say you want to have this kind of a learning framework for audio or you want to have this kind of learning framework for uh, video or images or uh, reinforcement learning, text, everything. And uh, back then, uh, when Mikla did word to back, uh, the, the the way in which you encode the context uh, which you're using to predict the missing word was very very simple. It was just mean uh, an average of the context words, and you know, like if you had like four or five words surrounding the missing word, you would just average the embedding of those words. Uh, there was no no notion of uh, you know the position or like trying to have like a uh, temporal model. Uh, these kind of things were not present back then. Uh, so CPC adds all those things. So that's why it's called uh, contrastive predictive coding. It predicts something uh, and in a contrastive fashion. Uh, and, it, and it uses a context uh, in order to predict some something that's missing. And, um, and, and, and that context can be modeled using an autoregressive model, uh, like, like, you know, like a uh, pixel CNN and so forth. That, that just looks at uh, the past few words or the past few frames or the past few patches in an image and then tries to predict the future frames or future image patch or future word or future audio chunk. So, uh, and, but it does this in an embedding space similar to word to vec doesn't do it in the raw input space. Uh, because doing it in the raw input space would, would, would mean, uh, you, you know, you're trying to model a lot of things that you don't care about. For example, right now, uh, when I'm talking to you, uh, your, your, your mind roughly models the next word I'm, I'm going to say. And, uh, it doesn't do this at the level of like, uh, my actual, uh, audio waveform, right? Like you're trying to sort of, focus on the phonemes, you're trying to focus on like the uh, words that I'm speaking and you have a language model running in your head. So so you're, you're focusing on more abstract things when you're trying to expect or predict the future outcomes. Uh, and, and, and this is true for any sensory stream. Like uh, when you see a ball falling, you're like focusing on more abstract entities like the, ob- the object being the ball and the physics of the ball and so forth. So, so that's what, that, that's another motivation for CPC. Uh, you, you predict the future in a latent space and you're trying to do this with contrastive losses, uh, which are a very efficient way of like, uh, uh, solving the degeneracy problem in the latent space. And, uh, and, 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 and so this particular f- paper, CPC proposes, uh, 
like one method that works for a lot of modalities and it, it presented really promising results uh, in, in 2018 on, on, on the uh, image uh, unsupervised learning benchmarks. Not that like it was uh, any any better than supervised learning at that time, but uh, made made like at least like a 10% jump from what the computer vision community had by then. And here you're talking about the, the, the Van Den Ord paper? Yeah, yeah, precisely, yeah. Uh, and yeah, so then, um, the next summer, um, I, I interned with Aaron Vandenyord and, uh, we worked on the version two of the paper. Um, so where we basically said, okay, like, uh, the, the, the trends in language, uh, NLP suggests that, uh, you know, just revisiting the old ideas and making models larger, uh, end up getting like really amazing results. Like, uh, uh, 2018 was the year of GPT and BERT. Uh, like the GPT one, uh, if you if you may call it that way. Uh, so basically, where they they just uh, took a transformer, trained it, trained language models or mass language models, but trained it on like vast amounts of data uh, with la- really large models, and 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 showed that uh, pre-training really works. So uh, a result like that for vision, computer vision, would be really cool because uh, the amount of uh, unlabeled image data on the web is just massive. And, and so, um, we thought, okay, let's get a really good result on ImageNet, like what with, with the CPC framework by making the models larger. Uh, and, uh, so we made the rest, like whatever the ResNet that's used to encode the patches in an image. Uh, you make, you, you, we were using ResNet, uh, 50s or 101s and we just made it like really wide and large. And, uh, we also just added a lot more data augmentations, which was like sort of a new thing at the time, but now everyone, everyone does it. Uh, and, and we, uh, tuned a lot of hyperparameters just to see like what's very important and what's not important. And, uh, just, just doing these things, no new idea, just taking the CPC idea, but, but sort of doing the engineering, uh, gave us like, uh, allowed us to go from like a, um, uh, accuracy of like 48% to 72%. Uh, you know, it's, it's crazy to think, uh, say that, you know, but, but that's kind of how it was. You, you just keep doing new, uh, new tricks and then the, mo- the performance just kept going up and up and up. And, uh, so there was a special result we had in the paper where, um, we could, uh, pre-train, uh, that is, we take all the unlabeled data and ImageNet. Uh, so imagine somebody gave you ImageNet. They gave you both the images and the labels. You would you would think that it's best to just first uh, train a direct supervised learning model uh, and, and and deploy the classifier. Like why would you do unsupervised learning? Uh, but we had this really cool result in the paper where uh, if the model is really large, if if it has a lot of capacity, uh, it's better to first do the unsupervised pre training and then fine tune onto the supervised objective, just like how Bird does it. Uh, so we, you, you do the CPC training, uh, you, you train, you get a really good feature space and then you fine tune it to image classification. Uh, and we ended up getting like a solid, like, uh, two, uh, two to 3% improvement in the top one accuracy on image net classification. So, uh, and, and, and like, like 83% compared to 80%, uh, just by doing this unsupervised pre-training. Uh, and, and this was true when you had, uh, all like label data in various regimes. So for example, uh, if I might tell you that I give you a million images, but I only give you the labels for 10,000 images or I only give you the labels for 100,000 images um, and, 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 and ask you to deal with it, that's really hard. Like just supervised learning wouldn't be able to do anything much. 
but but the sort of unsupervised pre-training and then fine-tuning it to the label label data uh, is is way more data efficient. Uh, it can uh, it can do classification with just like ten percent of the labels and get you like a really good classifier that people used to get with hundred percent of the labels. So to us, all these things were really exciting. Like the fact that larger models were working much better for unsupervised learning, and unsupervised learning is finally like a relevant thing now because it can now surpass or be competitive with supervised learning on like downstream tasks or just even improving classification. And uh, it was sort of finally delivering uh, the promise. And then uh, a lot of follow-up work came uh, from like um, other, other, other big companies like Facebook and Google, like Facebook, uh, uh, Kaiming He, uh, the inventor of ResNets, uh, he came up with this paper called MoCo, Momentum Contrast, which simplified the CPC model like significantly and uh, like also improved the results. And then Simclear from uh, Google Brain, uh, a paper from Jeff Hinton, uh, improved on top of MoCo and uh, really, really pushed up the results so much. And and now like uh, you know this is like really one of the hottest topics in 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 in, in the in the in the field right now like contrast of self supervised learning, so uh, so that's kind of the history of like these contrast of learning papers. It seems it seems like recently it's really been picking off. Uh, but but la- when I was working on it last year, it wasn't that hot. Uh, we we were still trying to get the numbers that were not not there yet in the uh, in the field. And um, so is is CPC considered a type of metric learning? Um, you can say so. Uh, so so you can say that CPC is both like a latent space generative model trained with contrastive losses. Uh, you can also say that CPC is a way to do metric learning where you get a latent space that can give you really good distance metrics. Uh, so that that's one nice thing about the generality of the framework. Uh, so CPC uh, has this notion of predicting the future and the latent, and so you can definitely use it as a latent space model that uh, could be used, say, if you if you use it in reinforcement learning setups, you could use it as a as as a world model uh, in the latent space, or uh, if you use it for audio, you could predict the future audio chunks in the latent space. Uh, you don't have a decoder, so you you can if you want to actually. Like like uh, here, what you're predicting, you should you should also train a decoder. But uh, in general, like you can think about it as like modeling the future of the, in the latent space, and and so that's uh, that's why it's more general than like the other methods like Simclear or Moco, which is purely intended at metric learning. Uh, CPC is not just a metric learning framework. I see. So it kind of spans between metric learning and and generative uh, models. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about CURL. That was uh, the Contrastive Unsupervised Representations for Reinforcement Learning, uh, yeah. your first author paper that, that was from this year. Can you tell us what was the uh, what was the idea here with this paper? Yeah, so the idea of this paper is um, model-free reinforcement learning uh, from pixels is really, really uh, sample inefficient, uh, particularly on these robotic control environments where you go from pixels to darks and uh, it takes like millions of steps or 10 to 100 millions of steps to get any reasonable policy working on uh, even a task like just reaching in 2D uh, with with like a three link reacher or something like that. So what is the way in which you can actually make it more efficient? 
without complicating the RL algorithm, without trying to do anything fancy, like uh, predicting the future, like learning a world model and so forth. Um, that's what motivated us to think about uh, curl, uh, which is we thought, okay, uh, there's contrastive learning is working really, really well for image recognition. It's making image recognition a lot more data efficient by trying to uh, use uh, these contrastive losses uh, and uh, trying to learn really good representations that allow you to be label efficient. So would, would something similar happen in reinforcement learning where if you start training with both the contrastive loss and the reinforcement learning losses, uh, would you be able to be a lot more data efficient and therefore solve a task that were earlier solvable in like 10 to 100 million time steps? Like, can you solve it in like uh, 100,000 time steps or 500,000 time steps? Like, at least like maximum of a million time steps. So, so that was the idea. And, uh, uh, I learned from some of my mistakes that we did in the CPC version two paper in terms of um, uh, like, you know, not not like kind of like going for a simpler instance discrimination style objective compared to um, predicting in, in the like, you know, patches and things like that. So we, I already looked at this MoCo paper from Kaiming uh, and uh, realized it's, it's a much simpler framework to think about contrast losses than CPC. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's a, like, it was sort of counterintuitive at the time. Like, uh, my, my professor, Peter Abiel, uh, thought that like, you should predict the future because, you know, reinforcement learning is like a time-based thing. And, uh, you, you would rather, uh, predict the future in the latent space in an explicit way, but by, by taking a frame at time step T and predict the future at time step T plus K in, in a contrastive way, just like CPC does. But uh, I was pretty uh, dogmatic on this uh, thing that, okay, this instance discrimination, which is um, you take an image and you take another augmented view of the same image and you just say that uh, these two have to correlate well in the latent space compared to uh, any other image. I, I, I just felt that this would be really the simplest auxiliary loss that you can add to uh, reinforcement learning and it should just work. Uh, and, 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 and so that, that, that in turn led to this... Uh, question of like uh, how do you do instance discrimination in the for, for reinforcement learning models that, that train from pixels and uh, so uh, one thing that we uh, started doing was um, all these instance discrimination models in MoCo and Simclear they, they, they use these um, data augmented views of the same image so in reinforcement learning no one has ever tried data augmentations uh, and so we thought, okay, so if that works, then that's like an added novelty point to the paper where we, curl becomes the first framework to explore data augmentations uh, in, in, in the reinforcement learning setup. And uh, so that that's how it came about. Like you, you sort of want to have an auxiliary task that can speed up your learning uh, significantly, hopefully. And then uh, this, the auxiliary loss is like, loss, like super simple, not trying to predict the future and the pixels or not trying to do any auto-encoding uh, at the pixel level uh, because that, those things are unlikely to scale to really large or complex environments that uh, have very high fidelity in the inputs, but rather just trying to do these uh, contrastive losses in the lane space between augmented views of the same image. And we started trying using random crops and uh, that, that worked out really well. Uh, we got a significant benefit from just using this 
contrast to objective uh, compared to the baselines uh, like like the both the, the 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 naive baseline of not using any auxiliary loss uh, as for this um, uh, you know we we had we had all these really really over engineered baselines from uh, the, the reinforcement learning community on like things like planet dreamer uh, so uh, or like uh, soft as stochastic latent active critic and so forth um, so so we beat all those methods by a wide margin and uh, and we also had really good results on Atari uh, so so we pushed the so basically whatever results Google brain and got with a really high compute uh, model based method that predicted the future like a video prediction model and and did rollouts and and, and, and you know and did planning with it we, we were able to beat it with just a very lightweight model that did this auxiliary loss um, and and so I, I mean, I, uh, so that was basically the paper and, uh, I didn't really expect it to be, uh, that, that, that big, but, uh, you know, the, apparently people were very surprised by the results. And, um, I think now like there's a lot of follow-up work on different auxiliary losses in this contrastive setting. Um, and so that, and, uh, you can do a lot more complicated things, right? So, so there's a lot more scope for future work here. So I'm looking at figure two in the curl paper that shows the architecture and it shows the two different batches, one going to the Korean encoder and one going to the key encoder and uh, feeding into the reinforcement learning loss and the contrastive loss. Can you help me understand what are the, those two streams doing and what are the two different, the difference between those two different batches of data? Yeah, sure. So uh, typically the way you do uh, off-policy reinforcement learning is you have a replay buffer and you load observations from it and then you uh, have a, a re- like your actor critic loss going into the model, right? Uh, so now when you add an auxiliary loss, uh, uh, you, you have another unsupervised objective in tandem with the reinforcement learning objective. So uh, the contrastive model basically tries to make sure that uh, data augmented views of the same observations have are, are closer in the latent space. And uh, so you have your observations, uh, the frame stack, and you create, a two, you create two different augmented views. Uh, one is the query and the other is the key. And both of them go through the separate encoders. Uh, the query goes to the query encoder and the key goes to the key encoder. In practice, the key encoder is just a time-delayed version of the query encoder, uh, basically a poly-averaged version of it. And you just try to make sure that this Q, which uh, is F theta Q of OQ and K, F theta K of OK, the, the, the Q and K are much closer in the lane space uh, because you, you say that, they are, oh, these are just two different augmented views. They shouldn't be too far away in the latent space. And so... Uh, so that particular loss that ensures that the dot product of Q and K uh, is high uh, relative to like other keys that you can get from other frame stacks not related to this particular image, uh, that loss is called the contrastive loss. And so that is the contrastive learning objective. Uh, On the other hand, you can still perform reinforcement learning on the uh, original input that you already have been sending. So you you you. So that reinforcement learning loss is just also backpropagating through the query encoder, and there is no uh, backpropagation through the key encoder. So the contrastive learning 
uh, loss is just going to affect the query encoder and the reinforcement learning loss is also just going to affect the query encoder and the key encoder is just like a time delayed version of the query encoder so this is similar to the momentum contrast mechanism um, and, um, and 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 so you just do this uh, there's absolutely no engineering in terms of how how like usually in in, um, in whenever people add auxiliary losses in reinforcement learning they have to engineer the coefficient of the auxiliary loss that they're adding uh, to get good results but in this paper the the really lucky thing that happened was we we had to do none of that uh, we just added both the losses and uh, together it worked really well and uh, yeah so that's how the learning objective that's how like this framework works so some of these types of losses i th- i think i've seen have ne- uh, present negative and positive examples is that a thing here yeah yeah so you you present uh so you 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 have a query and you have a key so the query is sort of like an anchor uh and and the key is one of the positives for the query anchor and all the other samples in your mini batch uh so you when you load a mini batch from your replay buffer you do this for every single mini batch you created two different views so for every sample uh the the uh, like one of the views is the anchor the other view is the positive and every other uh, sample in your mini batch becomes a negative for you, and then uh, you can perform the contrastive loss with the negative, ne- with the negatives in a very, very computationally efficient fashion by using dot products. And uh, so, so yeah, you're right. Uh, we we use every other image in the mini batch as a negative for the contrastive objective. I see. Cool. Okay. And can you tell us more about maybe the ex- experience of uh, planning the experiments and running the experiments for this? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, like, um, we, we, there were a few papers at the time, uh, trying to, um, uh, show my, like, improvements at the, um, like, like the, uh, deep mind control benchmarks, which was sort of becoming popular at the time, um, um, like like in terms of sample efficiency, like the stochastically inactive critics, Planet Dreamer, and so forth. So we picked those benchmarks because uh, it's it's always good to show results on stuff that other people are working on, and um, and and we just tried these six basic environments that were there in the uh, soft active critic with auto encoders paper, uh, and so then we got really good improvements on top of them. Uh, or, or uh, just without doing much work, actually, uh, and 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 since this was like way way simpler, uh, we just thought like, oh, this is worth publishing. So that's kind of how it happened. Um, we, I mean, we coded the contrast model and just tried it on a bunch of environments, and it worked pretty well. And and so then we started like uh, iterating more. It's like for example. The results on one or two environments like Cheetah was, were not that good, and so we just figured out that we had to increase the batch size and it worked better. So there were like a few engineering tricks, but more or less it, it was an idea that just wanted to work. And you cited uh, Vand and Word's paper where they, they used CBC for RL, um, mm-hmm. but they didn't get great results at the time. Mm-hmm. Can you can you help us understand why um, maybe that didn't work as well compared to Coral? I think that firstly, like uh, Van den York's paper used uh, the DeepMind lab environments, which are which are pretty different from the environments presented here. 
but I, I would say it's more more an aspect of uh, Aaron not like spending too much time on the reinforcement learning setup, but uh, you know, like it, it's it was a paper with like five or six benchmarks, and so the amount of time you go spend like uh, on just one part of it is much lower, right? Like uh, if you look at CPC version one, the original paper, even the results on ImageNet are not that great, and then. When we just went in full depth on ImageNet for the version two, um, we got like way better results. Uh, so I think it's more like that, like uh, well, probably not sufficiently engineered, as or, or, or sufficient time spent on it uh, compared to like the curl paper. So what kind of domains uh, do you think uh, benefit from this type of loss? Like it seems to me maybe the requirements are um, domains that have high dimensional observations. And uh, maybe some way to do meaningful data augmentation. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, like, let's say you were trying to apply this to tabular data. Would that mm-hmm. make any sense, or would it? Would you say that that's just too low dimensional, or like direct state data? Yeah. So I think it, I think this idea is not particularly useful for. So so it depends. Like, if you are specifically talking about the exact implementation of curl. Uh, you do need data augmentations for it to work because it 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 fundamentally centers itself on this instance discrimination method um, and so if you want to do instance discrimination you want to be able to have a way to say two things are similar to compare to any other thing and that that's going to be if it's at the instance level you need a data augmentation for that um, but if you're trying to move more towards like the predicting the future style like I, I, I have a current state and I'm going to try to predict the future, but I won't actually try to predict it. I would I would use it in the I, I would do it in a latent space with contrastive losses. Uh, I think there uh, you might be able to move away from data augmentations and uh, might be able to do it with even like low level state. And uh, but but I would still assume you would need data augmentations to uh, have like a really good performance. So even in CPC. Just because we are trying to predict the future doesn't mean we don't use data augmentations. We still use data augmentations there. And uh, so might not be applicable to tabular data, but might be applicable to continuous control. Like uh, people need to try that. Um, and um, it, I think it has a really good potential for, you know, like uh, any image-based RL or image-based imitation learning or... Uh, even like uh, if you, if somebody wanted to combine reinforcement learning with language and you wanted to use some um, contrast to losses to learn language representations in, in tandem with like the reinforcement objectives, I think these kind of things might be pretty useful. So there's a few um, things that come up in, say, Atari, like, like the bullet problem where you might say um, people have criticized uh, reconstruction methods because they say, well, the reconstruction might ignore a small pixel like a bullet, but the bullet is actually very important to the outcome. So um, can you say anything about how a curl would perceive uh, a small, a very small f- a feature that, that turns out to be really important? Yeah. So let's say like you perform these random crops and, you know, like um, it, like, like between the random crops, if the bullet was present in both of the random crops. Uh, and and every other mini ba- every other frame in your mini batch didn't have the bullet, or at least some of the frames didn't have the bullet. 
then you would use the bullet as the as a feature to sort of make sure that the two random crops are encoded in the same like nearby compared to other other frames in your mini batch right so if 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 the bullet ends up becoming a access point for you for your instance discriminator to make like like relate to two separate augmented views uh then then you're definitely going to encode it uh compared to like reconstruction methods which is sort of like focus on everything equally and might not get the things that you care about that that said uh, it it is likely that you could still miss the bullet if you if every single mini batch in your uh, in your curl setup has has the bullet and so uh, that doesn't become a discriminator feature anymore for doing the instance instance discrimination objective and um, so so then like you might have to try things like contrastively predicting the future where where the bullet might have moved and so you focus on like uh, oh the right, true future is where the bullet is actually in in the bottom and because in the past it was at the top and so it probably moved down and all the other frames uh, seem to be having like the bullet somewhere else and so that's not the right thing because uh, in these many time steps like it must have moved on by this much so you f- start focusing on those things and you enc- and you encode the aspect of the bullet being there and like, its motion and things like that so uh it's definitely a more powerful and better framework for learning features than reconstruction Okay, and then another problem we hear about sometimes is this noisy TV problem, which yeah. I, maybe you could summarize as like an environment in which part of the observation is very is just noise random. And uh, so, how how would uh, this type of loss deal with uh, that type of, of randomness in the environment? Yeah, so so that's that's a really good question, and um, that's one of the reasons why I actually started working on um, on 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 uh, you know. <clears throat> This kind of like a contrast to learning methods because um, you you it'll basically ignore anything that it can't predict, right? So, in in contrast to learning, you're only going to encode things that are useful for you to like predict the future or like um, distill like your fundamental invariances in your augmentations that you're encoding in the instance setup. So, if if noise is not something that you can use to identify two augmented views or identify like the future given the past you would just ignore it and uh, you would not encode it and and so it's 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 better from that perspective as well actually uh if 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 it may help uh i think yashua benjio uh has has a talk kind of explaining this uh, idea in in like uh, some some presentation he gave at microsoft research a few years ago and it's there on youtube where he, he he precisely explains why you know uh, we should not be working on unsupervised learning from the reconstruction sense because it's trying to encode all the noise and we don't want to encode the noise. Thanks for the tip. So um, we've seen that that uh, RL can have problems with generalization and uh, with Atari and Majoko being kind of memorized, and mm-hmm. that's led to things like OpenAI uh, procedural generation environments, yeah. which which I see that you used in the Rad paper. But yeah. how? Um, how confident do you feel that the uh, that the nice properties of these contrast, contrastive representations would hold for out of distribution trajectories, data that's mm-hmm. never seen before? Mm-hmm. So, firstly, there are two types of generalizations, right? Like one is a generalization across states in the same environment, which is what we focus on in reinforcement learning. Um, 
So it's not like we are overfitting. Uh, it's just that we are generalizing within a narrow subset of like like what we think generalization is. Um, so if your model is not generalizing well across a state space, like if it's not able to do well on an unseen image, then uh, it won't be very sample efficient. Um, but the second thing, which is like, can it, if I, can I learn something and then put it on another thing and would it learn really fast there? I think right now we don't have the right benchmarks to say anything at all. Uh, I would expect a method like contrastive uh, learning to do better than reinforcement learning uh, if it's if it's about generalization because it definitely learns more about the environment than just just trying to optimize a reward function because the, the latter is very task specific the former is not so and in an ideal world like what I would really like is something like what happened in ImageNet where there's a lot of trajectories from a lot of different environments and you learn a really good contrastive model on those trajectories. And then you, you, you have a really good encoder and you just take that and you put an MLP on top of that and do the reinforcement learning specific for a task. You could even do multitask learning where you say that uh, you, you did a contrastive learning, there's the, the encoder was just learned purely from that and no reinforcement objective. And you have some separate heads emerging out of these encoders and doing the separate contrastive losses. And, uh, so that, that's, that's, that's what is like in an ideal world, like that's the right, like right approach in my opinion. Uh, and, uh, if you look at the curl paper, um, we, we actually have an ablation on, on, on like doing, doing something like this, where, uh, we call it like the, uh, detached encoder ablation, where, uh, we say that, you know, what, what if you could, um, it's actually there in, uh, figure nine. Uh, of the paper where we just say that the convolutional encoder is only trained with contrastive loss and the, only the MLPs that are on top of them, uh, which, which, which have the policy and the value function, uh, parameters are so tiny compared to the con convolutional encoder and they, they would just do the, uh, reinforcement objective. Um, and, 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 this sort of worked really well on like a lot of environments, but was still lagging behind on the harder tasks like cheetah run and so forth. But in future, I'm sure this is, this is going to work. And, uh, once this works, uh, we could imagine training like, uh, you know, like you, let's say you have like a, like a centralized learner across lots of different tasks. Uh, you, you're getting data from all these tasks. Uh, and the uh, the different tasks can all feed into the convolutional encoder just perform contrastive learning so there is no uh issue in terms of uh you know combining multiple losses which is what people usually uh struggle with when they try to do multitask RL. and then they can have the heads emerging out of these uh out of this encoder specializing to the separate tasks um based whether you want to share any parameters or not is up to you um, and, and, and so this is ideally where I want to like get contrast learning. Like, you know, uh, I hope to see it like sort of moving towards in future. And, uh, if that happens, then we could definitely generalize really well, because if we learn on a lot of different tasks, we learn visual features that are common across a lot of different tasks, then it's very likely that you put it in a new environment. It's going to uh, be providing you some useful features so that you can just build an MLP on top of it and you don't really have to train the encoder.
Do you want to talk about RAD? Uh, that was your yeah, paper, sure. Reinforcement Learning with Augmented Data. Yeah. Uh, Alaskan et al. 2020. So what can, can you give us, give us the uh, general idea of uh, this paper? Oh, sure. So after we wrote Curl, um, like um, one of the authors in RAD, um, like like he was, in, he was a postdoc in our lab. So he actually asked us like a very interesting question, like, uh, hey, this thing is really cool. It works, but... Uh, you know, like, what if you don't, what, what if, like, how, how do we know, like, what's really helping in the curl framework? Is it the data augmentations or is it the contrast of loss? And, and even if the contrast of loss is helping, like, what is helping you more? Is it the fact that the reinforcement learning objective now looks at, like, augmented views of the data? And um, so so that's sort of more like, uh, you know, uh, in, in supervised learning, uh, you, you're, you're like say when you're training an image net or C4 classifier, um, you're feeding in random crops of the image to the model, right? And you're saying that all these different random crops should have the same output. And in curl, you're trying to do that in a more explicit way by say you you're, by explicitly saying that the two augmented views should correlate well in the latent space. So um, you, you're you're explicitly ensuring this consistency constraints using this contrastive objective. But uh, just tr- sort of trying to feed in two augmented views, uh, like multiple augmented views of an a- input to the reinforcement learning model, having no explicit uh, consistency objective, but implicitly trying to ensure it's going to happen because uh, just like how you predict the same output for multiple inputs, you, you would do the same thing in the reinforcement setup where you would predict the same value function or policy for the multiple different cropped versions of the input. And... Um, so, so one of one of our co-authors asked us to try that, and and we thought, okay, it's it's totally worth trying, and it would be good to know. And we tried it, and it, to a surprise, it actually worked like even better than curl on a lot of these different deep mind control environments. So, so that ended up becoming rad. It was like you know much simpler, uh, much more radical, if you may put it that way. Uh, like you know in terms of. Um, being the simplest possible thing that you could try with data augmentations and reinforcement learning. And and it was also that nobody had really tried this. Even though curl was also the first to, you know, combine data augs and RL, it did it in a more um, auxiliary loss fashion that, that, that people were already like sort of used to in, in, in RL. So nobody was used to like just having pure modify RL, just input data loader change, no algorithmic change or no extra loss function working really well and uh you know beating every other method in the in in the in the field so so and 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 to a surprise we found it it also worked on these procedural generation environments of open ai so so it wasn't just specific to deep mind control um and uh, people have also found it to work on atari like um other the the parallel paper from nyu on this so 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 yeah, it was it was a very surprising result, uh, and uh, and and like 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 discussed in the rad paper, it doesn't mean that curl is not useful or something. Like uh, that is like a mis- misconception among a lot of people. Like oh, that, does this mean we just use rad? Because like I said, you know, curl has a more general framework, and you can think about it using it even without any reward functions available. Whereas in a rad, like if you don't get rewards, like you're not going to be able to. Uh, like have any objective at the end, right? Like you would have, you, you can feed augmented views as your inputs, but if you don't have the uh, 
the loss function coming in and making your encoder learn uh, with like very dense rewards is not going to work. Whereas cur- something like curl, you can just have the auxiliary objective and um, you can sort of um, like, like use it with sparse reward tasks or you can use it uh, as a way to just learn representations from data without any reward function uh, and, and fine-tune it when you have when you start getting reward functions and so forth. Okay, so, so do you think of the specific augmentations uh, in RAD as somehow fundamental or, or are they just some starting set? Like, should we expect a growing set of augmentations? Yeah, I think you should expect a growing set of augmentations because uh, what we start with is what happened in image recognition. Um, it, like, if you look at AlexNet, um, it's very famous for, um, like there is like, if you read the paper, like, you know, the f- first page of the paper or something like that, it's it, like they mentioned how they basically take resize the images to 256 by 256 and then take 224 by 224 crops of that random crops. And, uh, that increases the size of the data set by 2000 X or something like that. Um, so, so, you know, random crops is something very, very fundamental. Uh, to image recognition, um, or and it's also used in training generative models, like like uh, you know making GANs overfit less things like that. Um, so it was the simplest thing we could start with. That said, like uh, you know, uh, contrastive learning uses a lot more augmentations, like colored based augmentations, uh, random grayscale and things like that, and um, also. Um, a lot of more distortions like rotation, shearing, translations. These are things that we haven't really pushed much on, like uh, yet. And like you know, I think I think there's more more, more to come. Uh, like random translate, people have already figured out random translate as an augmentation works better than random crop, and both for curl and rad. So um, so that that's like another upgrade, uh, though it's very similar in spirit. And um, depending on the environment, you might need new things. For example, um, think about robotics like manipulation tasks, like uh, not locomotion. If you keep doing random crops, you might miss the object in the scene or you might miss the arm and it it might be hard for uh, doing the task. Uh, but what if you have two different cameras or three or four different cameras, just like, you know, how a Tesla car has eight different cameras, right? So... Um, then you could uh, sort of like not feed in few camera images and just feed in certain camera images. So you can think of that, think of that as like random cropping across cameras, and that could force the model to learn to be robust to like not having certain views and try and extrapolate it implicitly. And uh, I think that 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 kind of an augmentation could work really well in robotic manipulation. And also, if you start performing tasks that are more long horizon in nature, like uh, twenty or thirty different frames, you want to look at it in 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 context together. Then you might want to <clears throat> drop few frames across time as well. So right now we are doing spatial random crops. We are dropping few pixels, but what if you just want to like drop a few frames uh, instead of feeding? Like even though your your policy can look at like. 20 frames in the past, the your com net might might just be fed like 10 or 15 frames, and um, you 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 would miss five or 10 frames, uh, but your model might learn to be robust to it. So think about this is some kind of like an input dropout, um, or you perform like very different random crops across time, uh, 
just like how things have worked out well in video recognition, where in video recognition, people do both spatial and temporal random crops. So, um, so that's the kind of augmentation that I'm hoping really works out in the future. We, we, have, we have a few projects in our lab, on, like people working on these things, but uh, it hasn't really panned out yet. And, um, and, and, and like I said, multi-view is like something that is like I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people are trying, trying things on it with Rad and Curl and seeing some good results. So, um, that might really lead to a lot of, uh, you know, data efficiency, data efficiency gains and robotic grasping or in general, robotic manipulation. Part of the promise of deep learning is, uh, is avoiding handcrafted features. Um, I guess we're, at this point, we're kind of hand designing some of these augmentations, although it seems a lot simpler than designing features. But do you think that eventually um, these augmentations would be automatically designed somehow? Yeah. So, my, so let me let me first sort of like give a very, very balanced answer to this. Uh, number one, like why what you said is indeed true at like a more broader sense uh, that deep learning sort of goes away from handcrafted features. Uh, I. I I really think that data augmentations uh, with some domain knowledge has been something that people have always been using in deep learning. Like it, it, it's probably something that people focus on or acknowledge a lot more now than in the past. But uh, it's always been there. It was a huge part of AlexNet being great, and uh, as as just like a data point that was never published anywhere, but sort of like an interesting data point. Um, if you take a ResNet uh, or uh, any any kind of state-of-the-art image classifier and you go to the code base and you just comment out the random crop, you know, you just, you just, just say that you only take the center crops or you resize the image to your appropriate shape, um, your your accuracy would drop by at least 7 to 8%. And that's that's like huge. Uh, you, you have a classifier that's 76% top one accuracy. The, the accuracy would just drop to like 68% or something like that. So doesn't that already tell you like how image image recognition is just like one of the generally given as like one of the success stories of deep learning uh, or, or whatever started the whole revolution depended so much on like domain knowledge, which is the fact that, you know, in an image, you, you if you move the camera around, which is what is equal to simulating a random crop and capture the image, the 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 object present in the image, the object you identify as in the image, shouldn't really change. And the other augmentation which we all use is this flipping augmentation, which is you flip an image from right to left or left to right. Uh, you should see the same uh, same class. So that that that's another domain knowledge thing which which people have been using ever since like uh, Krzyzewski used it. And um, even the old like Lenet classifiers that were trained on MNIST use data augmentations. Uh, like like translating the digits and so forth. Um, and in NLP, people have been using it with like the back translation idea, which is like you, you, you take a sentence, you translate it to another language, and then you come back to your original language and you get like the same sentence with a different like way in which it's being constructed, but the same meaning. And people have used this as an augmentation uh, for training translation models and getting a lot of gains, significant gains that uh, this technique is even used in production. So, um, yeah, so I would say that, you know, uh, all the success stories of deep learning, audio, NLP, uh, vision, um, have always been using domain knowledge. And uh, it's it's not a bad thing. Uh, and and uh, 
do I see this becoming more like learned rather than engineered? I, I it's hard to say. Uh, in fact, like uh, learned augmentations have so far not really worked well. Uh, like uh, Quarkly has this paper called Auto Augment, uh, which is sort of using the equivalent of uh, neural architecture search for augmentations. Like, can we just automatically you construct a vocabulary space and then automatically learn uh, the right augmentations or sequence of augmentations? Uh, like I said, like you know, uh, just like how NAS is sort of fundamentally built on top of human-engineered ops. Uh, like you, you have the three by three con, you have the skip connection, you have batch norm, you have layer norm, and then you figure out how to combine all these things. Uh, similarly, augment like like auto augment is also built on top of a similar idea. So unless you have the vocabulary uh, of like random crop or random translate stuff, like uh, color distortions and things like that, you you're not going to be able to do something fundamentally new out of these um, auto ML style approaches. So so yeah, I, I think it's just going to be I think it's going to be a big part of. Uh, future systems and and we we definitely get a lot of benefit from doing um augmentation tricks so just like 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 think about think about it practically as a, any like like robotics is a very practical field and uh it's not going to be academic and definitely like you know a lot of startups are already beginning to focus on just getting robots to work in industry and not focusing too much on writing a paper and 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 for them it's like uh okay i train i train a robot in my company but then the robot has to go and work in a factory uh so the lighting conditions will be different the camera uh might be different uh or 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 you know like the object scene might be very different so obviously like you're not going to be able to train at test time so um you should be able to do all these augmentations that you should fundamentally prepare for while deploying just while you're training the robot in your factory right so you would randomize a lot of the lighting conditions you would randomize the objects uh there's this idea in uh robotics called domain randomization where you you train a lot of different variants and simulations so that it can work in the real world so the, the these ideas have always been there it's just that um curl and rad are trying to explicitly like in, in, increase the importance of focusing on that more than the algorithms and uh showing the power that uh just these simple changes can give you a massive improvement in performance so does rad end up using a lot more mini batches than the standard model free algorithm um because the data uh, not a lot like it uses uh, a batch size of um, 128 uh, which is what other people are training with uh, but it, it effectively sees a lot more data, uh, a lot diverse data than other methods because it's looking at these augmented views of the images. So it's sort of like, uh, kind of like, you know, like how AlexNet basically increases the size of the data set by 2000x by doing the augmentations. Uh, RAD is increasing the size of the data set implicitly by never providing like, one version of the same thing with a lot of multiple different versions. But in terms of computation, we are not increasing the amount of computation the model goes through. It, it's the same amount of computation. It's just that it's seeing a lot of diverse inputs each time it does any computation, so it's way faster. Okay, that was a surprising answer to me. I didn't expect it. That's really cool. Okay, so um, so let's move on to Sunrise. Uh, you got a, you got a, so many great papers here to talk about, and... Uh, so Sunrise, uh, uh, this, a simple unified framework for ensemble learning and deep reinforcement learning. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us about this paper? What is the, the general idea here? Sure. So firstly, uh, this paper, I, I can't, I can't take too much credit for us because, uh, like, like, uh, you know, curl and rad, I, I can say I was primarily leading these efforts, but, uh, um, Sunrise was a lot of, mostly done by, by, by Kim and Lee, the first author, and my ad- advisor, Peter Abil, actually, like, it was sort of his, his ideas. So, um, basically the idea is, like, like, if you want to just, fo- like, say, curl and rad focus on the data augmentation and those, those aspects, but, but you can also improve reinforcement learning by focusing on the algorithm aspect. And in the algorithm aspect, uh, value-based methods are really finicky and hard to train. Uh, but but they are often the best methods in terms of sample efficiency compared to policy gradient methods, and in value based methods, uh, you 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 typically have this thing called a target net that provides you the target for the uh, Bellman equation, and you backpropagate the Bellman error. Um, so uh, usually the target net is finicky because uh, the updates change a lot, and therefore um, you know the the current network is changing much faster than the target net, and 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 might not might not actually be a, you know, like a great great um, like like most stable thing that you can work with. So the idea here is like, what if ensemble models? Like if you have multiple uh, um, target nets or multiple value functions, and you could sort of use the statistics across them to stabilize your updates. So. Um, Let's say I, ha- I had 10 different uh, me- methods to pick my target from, um, and uh, I, c- I could take the mean and the standard deviation uh, across these different models and uh, use that to sort of provide an uncertainty estimate for my target instead of just using a point estimate and, and thereby being a lot more, uh, uh, you know, stable and, 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 and faster with training. So that's the idea in Sunrise, and it's heavily inspired by Osband's work, uh, Ian Osband's work on Bootstrap DQN, uh, except that it's it's using the uh, mean and the tar- and and the variance of these estimates more explicitly, and uh, able to like uh, do the error propagation much better, and uh, so that's really all I I I I you know I can say about it because uh, it it was a lot more work done by Kimin on the on the setup. But uh, one thing I would say, one thing that to me was really surprising about this paper was was its uh, really good results on state-based RL, like like where uh, the the state of the art results on state-based RL, like where you you're not learning from pixels, but the actual state were were typically from model-based methods uh, that tried to predict the future state and then uh, you know used it to simulate some fake rollouts or whatever. Um, but but this one is, is a pure model-free method with, with ensembles uh, ha, has sort of like caught up with those results from model-based methods, uh, and 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 to me that was really surprising. That's sort of like the curl story again for states because uh, in curl we saw that happening on images, and uh, with sunrise we saw that like oh a simple idea with uh, existing model-free RL and nothing else. Uh, can 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 be very competitive or even outperform the state of the art model based methods. Awesome. Um, let's let's talk about uh, the course that you co created and co taught: deep unsupervised learning, sure. uh, the Berkeley course CS two nine four one fifty eight. So, can you tell us a bit about this course and and the contents? Um, 
so yeah um in 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 20 uh so we we, we started the first version of the class in uh uh 2019 i think um so um like um basically in 2018 like after uh so i, I interned at openai in 2018 and um in the summer and uh, i was working on reinforcement learning at the time uh but that was the same time like uh ilia sutskiver and alec radford did the gpt paper and we we saw that happen and i saw how it basically changed the nlp field and in four months, like uh, the bird paper came out, and and basically it was a revolution. And uh, so so we saw like we saw right in front of our eyes that how like you know this unsupervised learning was really picking off. And then the when I had gone to ICML that summer to present my uh, uh, like like a paper on uh, like my research at Berkeley, uh, I, I the CPC paper had come out during the conference. So it was sort of like pretty. Uh, the, the the writing was on the wall that you know we should be working on unsupervised learning and so uh, on the other hand our lab was uh, sort of like um, a reinforcement learning lab like Peter Abiel's more known for reinforcement learning um, so we we sort of thought like okay the best way to learn is to teach it so let's sort of start a class and then we we can learn the content ourselves as well as like teach it to other people and and thereby by learning the content well we can do more research on it so that's how it started in 2019 um like there were there was like a couple of people in our lab who were also very interested in generative models like uh pixel cnns vaes flow models and gans and so forth so and i was very interested in like uh representation learning um and and like how it can be applied to a lot of different problems so um so we kind of put everything together and like uh, and 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 thought of first version in like 2019 um, uh, spring, and then we followed it up this year with the second version in 2020 spring. So that's really the story of the class, and it was the probably the one of the first few classes on this topic, very focused on like all the la- latest and greatest in the field because it's 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 kind of like a moving field, right? So for example. Uh, when we first taught the class, um, the the state of the art on Im- uh, image representation learning was CPC version one, uh, which had like forty eight percent accuracy. But now uh, this year, when we taught the class, uh, like you know, it was Sim- uh, Sim- Moco version two had come out, uh, and and the numbers were like like you know already like uh, close to eighty percent. So that's how fast the field was changing, and like. Um, Similarly, like when we designed the class in 2019, we it, it, only GPT and BERT existed at the time, but now you know how it is, right? And NLP, like it's basically a flurry of BERT papers now and GPT-2, GPT-3 and so forth. So um, similarly, like, you know, CURL, didn't, CURL wasn't there when, when we taught the class, like when we started the class this semester. And now I'm sure by next year, there'll be a lot of papers on this topic and reinforcement learning as well. So um, it's a very fast-moving topic, and uh, we just thought it'd be very interesting to have like a um, class that is mo- at the same time it helps us instructors learn as well as the students learn. We learn together. So, do you feel like this is early days still for uh, unsupervised learning? Ah, uh, yeah, definitely. I think so. Um, I think we. I think it's way better than a couple of years ago. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, like. 
um i think yeah it 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 definitely has gotten very compute compute intensive and uh it, so there are some principles we figured out that uh to do to be good at unsupervised learning the we do you really need a lot of computation power and you need to train really large models and you need to train on really large data sets so there there are some fundamental principles that are just objectively true now uh based on like what's happening in language and what's happening in images uh and and that kind of volume of training that kind of scale uh hasn't been done in reinforcement learning yet or imitation learning and uh, so i think that would be pretty interesting to see like most probably we're not able to do it because we don't have the benchmarks and might might be best done in an industrial setting like autopilot or like a robotics company but uh, i think i think that kind of a scale shown for some control tasks or some navigation tasks would be really interesting um uh but that said like i i i do think that like the right objective has hasn't been nailed like uh, like you know it, it's still sort of uh in nlp it's fundamentally centered on language modeling or mass language modeling in in vision it's fundamentally centered on contrastive learning between augmented views of the data uh, and 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 in reinforcement learning it seems like contrastive learning or um and and using some kind of augmentation seems to work really well so so it, it seems a bit like you know each 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 specific uh topic has its own um for formula that's going for it and uh whether we will ever be able to unify everything into one framework is 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 all, like an open question and it's still early days to sort of uh give a very definitive answer on that and uh it it may also not be necessary uh, i'm i'm not a i'm i'm not like like you know a big fan of like saying oh everything should be the same uh class of models same objective and it should just work on any data i think that universality thing is really cute but uh it's not it's, it's not like a must have it's fine if we can engineer really good ai systems that work uh even if they're very specific to the domain that you're training on but but uh in terms of yeah like what objectives to use like how to kind of improve it further um how to scale it further like in images we haven't still scale beyond imagenet convincingly well like nlp uh openash kind of scale to taken it to a totally different level by training it on like extremely large data sets um but in vision it still feels like we are still at the million images or 100 million images regime and kind of truly scaling into like billions or trillions of images on the internet like training it on videos training it on entire youtube I think these are still like out of reach at the moment and uh the reason is simply because of the computation power uh like for training a good image super image unsupervised model uh you need to train for at least like one, one week or one or two weeks if you have a really large model and you're training it for really long like thousands of epochs but that's like uh for like a million lab- million million image dataset so what if you really want to go to billion images then that's like 1000x more computation right so um imagine having to wait for a thousand weeks that's just not feasible and uh so so you will have to like sort of um you you might be able to just do like a one pass over the entire dataset uh to train it in a similar uh time frame and you would need a lot more cores a lot lot bigger pods a lot more uh, gpus and 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 so 
I, I, I do think like uh, it's, it's sort of like a topic that's more on, on like more relevant or more doable for large industry company than academia. And the best way academia can kind of work on unsupervised learning is to try to do it in, in the reinforcement learning setups because it's a lot more computationally cheaper and like uh, not something that industry is currently super focused on in terms of getting the best numbers and so you you get to have the state of the art and a lot of visibility for your work so that that was another motivating factor to do curl and uh, yeah i hope more people try it out in other environments like navigation and manipulation uh, or or even like uh, text and reinforcement learning things like that so this pattern of doing massive unsupervised learning or, or pre-training and then and then fine-tuning for certain tasks like we see with bert I wonder, does that point to a future where very few organizations have the um, capacity to tr- to do the massive pre-training and then on the rest of us are, are basically doing fine-tuning on, on the result? Yeah, I think that's very likely. Um, I, I, and and I, I, I kind of think that's how it should be, uh, where uh, like a lot of people uh, may not have the compute power to do the pre-training, but if if industries keep releasing these pre-trained checkpoints, um, then um, we might be able to uh, use them in in, in, in um, you know like 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 in in academic settings like like take a bird checkpoint and do something cool with it or take a CPC or a Moco or Sinclair checkpoint and try to like use it in a, in a, in, a, in a downstream task that is of academic interest. So so I. The, the the only only thing so far is uh in in re, in rl or imitation learning it's still not panned out in terms of like taking something that's trained on imagenet or youtube and putting it on a rl environment and uh that's kind of like uh like like a sad thing right like if, ideally it should work like if we have really good visual features um you should be able to like work on Atari or you should be able to work on DeepMind Lab or DeepMind Control and so forth. But somehow it doesn't seem to work uh, that great. It doesn't seem to give as much benefit from as like training from scratch on these environments. Um, so, but once that kind of works, like once we move to like much harder environments, which are really time consuming to render, or like once we are in like the real world, uh, and, and any kind of reinforcement learning is going to be super compute intense, like super, uh, data intensive and wall clock intensive um, using a really good pre-trained checkpoint provided by industry uh, on uh, as your backbone architecture and bootstrapping from it and fine-tuning it would be the uh, way to go I think yeah so any hints on on what types of things you plan to work on next you you plan on doing follow-on work on the type of things you've been doing yeah 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 so uh there are a lot of follow like there are a lot of follow up projects on 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 curl and rad that uh, I'm not directly working on, uh, but but it's sort of happening in our lab and some projects I'm just kind of advising on on them. Um, uh, and and currently I'm more focused on architectures, uh, deep learning architectures for like vision. Uh, so so that's another thing that I'm very really excited about. Like I hope it has similar. Uh, like impact as curl, which is we are trying to do things like uh, putting putting self attention and reinforcement learning. Um, how do you how do you do that? Like, what is it? What what are the right 
deep learning architectures for vision and RL, things like that. So, um, so we have, we have a few projects in, in our lab on those things. Um, also, you know, trying to use domain knowledge in other forms, like, um, what, what if you wanted to use, um, optical flow, uh, in reinforcement learning, like, like you want to model motion, want to use, like, want to solve, like, more temporal tasks. So there are some people also trying, like, temporal versions of curl. Uh, so, so there are a lot of projects on those things and, um, also like trying to do something in, in like driving simulators, car, like Carla, um, you know, because they are, they are more relevant to the real world. Not that it's very real world either, but there's not much you can do, uh, sitting at home during COVID and like, uh, do, do something real world in reinforcement learning, right? So it's, it's all going to be simulation. So why not be, why not, why not it be on like some more, more realistic one? And, um, so, so that, th- those are some interesting projects. And, and I also continue to keep working on like deep learning, like, uh, deep learning architectures for computer vision and so forth. So it, it's like a multi-pronged, uh, lot, a lot of different projects. Yeah. Sounds like you have a roadmap in mind, a long-term roadmap. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure if it's too long term, uh, but, um, <clears throat> these are, I mean, I, I just think it'd be pretty interesting to, uh, see if we can sort of move away from, uh, the primitive, uh, architectures that have been used all along in deep RL, you know? So, so just like how when we did the data augs work, um, like, like people, people who were not taking augs seriously in RL, like are now taking it seriously. Uh, I, I, I think architecture design should also be kind of similar and, so I think we'll see a lot more papers on that, not not just from us, but other people as well. So, um, and, and and like I said, uh, like a bit earlier, like when you asked me about the research focus, uh, for for like I think it'd be really useful to make deep RL more like deep learning, uh, like sort of more centered around engineering that and and less always on new ideas because um. If you notice, like, you know, there are like hundreds of papers in deep reinforcement learning that have proposed new ideas, new, new learning algorithms, new value functions, new policies or exploration methods. But somehow it's been really hard to keep track of the progress because, uh, they all do it on their own special set of environments. And, um, it's really hard to track the, um, like, like what's really helping you, right? And uh, on the other hand, something very simple like curl or rad uh, or sunrise, these are applied on a standardized benchmarks, but are heavily centered on just like one single idea and, 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 and very transferable often across multiple setups, both in general and specific ways. So I, I'm kind of, want, I kind of want to focus more on those things because um, that's kind of how deep learning has generally progressed in like, you know, over the, over the years. And it's very likely that that's how reinforcement learning or imitation learning will also progress over the years. Yeah, I have to say, like, um, many of these papers that you, that you were involved in or, or first authored are in this kind of extreme quadrant of extremely simple and uh, extremely effective in, in improving performance, which is probably a pretty great place to be. Yeah, th- thanks a lot for your kind words. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, like, I'm uh very inspired by the work that OpenAI does almost like uh all the time in terms of pushing the boundaries on uh what what simplicity and 
engineering can buy you over complexity and new ideas. Uh, and, you know, like the, if you look at their results in reinforcement learning, it's crazy. Um, like the, their results on the dactyl hand and the, uh, Rubik's cube, um, just by like pushing the simple idea of domain randomization, uh, which, which is also like an insp- inspiration for data augmentations, by the way, because in domain randomization, you just train it on like various different, uh, simulators and, um, various different image renderings and so forth. And, uh, I think, I think it's all like fundamentally the same idea. Um, so, so, so it's, I think simplicity can always give you a lot. Uh, there, there is some, uh, benefit from doing that or more, more complex or so, so that there are like two different things. One is you want to like enjoy your research and sometimes doing new things gives you more enjoyment. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, you also want to make sure that you, you don't, um, meander too much into working on non problems, like, uh, things that don't, that aren't actually, that, that don't actually pose you problems, but, uh, might actually be problems you invented just to have fun, you know? Um, uh, and, 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 uh, so I, I think I tend to focus more on like, uh, making sure it's not, um, too much on the uh, fun side, it, like and and not like unrealistic, but kind of really interesting papers versus like very useful but may not be super novel. I think I'm I, I would rather lean towards doing the useful but not super novel stuff. So besides uh, the things that you mentioned already in um, in this interview, are there things happening in RL lately that you find uh, really interesting? Other things? Let's see. Um, so that, I mean, I mean, John Schulman's papers are usually very, very interesting to me. Uh, so he, I think he pushes on the fundamental algorithm side and, uh, recently he released a paper called Phasic Policy Gradient that was pretty interesting. Like, uh, the image augmentation is all you need from NYU was very similar to Rack. Actually, it was pretty much the same, except they had like more, they, they also had augmentations to the target nets in the value function, uh, and, and focus purely on value based methods. Um, so I think, I think they also are doing great work. And, and then there's this paper from Montreal, uh, which was a follow up to curl called, uh, momentum predictive representations, which uses another idea in unsupervised learning called BYOL or bootstrap your own latent. Uh, from, from DeepMind and applies it to reinforcement learning. And, and, and they do this temporal predictions, which give them a lot more gains over curl. And, and they really improve the data efficiency in Atari even further. Um, so that, that, those are pretty, like, pretty much in the same vein as curl and rad, but being done by other people and other, other groups. And it's always like, you know, satisfying when, when, Multiple people are thinking of the same thing and uh, pushing pushing the numbers as hard. And uh, like um, yeah, so the, 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 there's also like you know um, like a lot of interesting work done in like ro- like gen- generally like in robot learning and like companies uh, which don't really come out in like academic papers. But um, in general, I'm I'm. I'm a fan of like what's happening in industry as well. Like how people do, how do, how people basically are pushing on pick and plays and kind of like, uh, you know, like pushing on like replacing humans in these logistics and factories. And like, like, for example, um, 
even if we make like uh, 10x progress in grasping uh, uh, and, and pick in place, uh, we might be able to have like a single day delivery instead of two day delivery on Amazon, right? So Amazon Prime. So uh, like those are those are high impact in terms of economic value and like like, but may not necessarily be the most like. Uh, it's not like you take the latest soda or the algorithm and put it on put it put it on these robots and hope that that happens. It's going to be more of these domain-specific engineering, uh, a lot of, uh, like, you know, augmentations, good object, like, computer vision, good object detection, and so forth. Like, it's, it's going to be more of engineering than research, but, uh, but, but you know, it, it definitely uses a lot of the ideas we publish in the, in the field and, and tries to get it into practice and make it a reality. Um, and... Uh, I think that those those kind of things will have a lot of impact. Arvind Srinivas, uh, this has been fascinating, very enlightening for me, and I'm sure for our audience. So I want to thank you uh, for sharing your your insight and your time with all of us today, and we look forward to watching your work in the future. Thanks so much, Arvind. Thank you, Robin. Thanks for having me. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRLPodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. 